Good morning. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I was growing up, and my, um, I don't even remember if this was like a song from the 70s or the 80s, but a song by the name, uh, by a gal named Crystal Gale, and the song was, Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue, but the way she sang it, she said, Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue, and I was always like, man, that's just terrible that somebody would try to take her batch of brownies and turn them blue. Because I'm like, I, like, it seems like a strange thing for somebody to do, but if somebody was turning my awesome batch of brownies blue, I'd be angry too, probably sing a song about it as well. Have you ever misunderstood something that someone was saying, or you thought you heard it correctly, uh, but you didn't really understand what it meant? Uh, these are some great ones from some other kids. I used to think clowns were a race of people just like any other. These all come from BuzzFeed when they ask their staffers what some of their kids actually misunderstood or misheard. How about this one? When my kid asked where babies came from, I told her that two people fall in love and then do adult things together. She said, oh, like bungee jumping. <laughs> I always wanted to have bangs as a little kid and was really upset because I thought you had to be born that way. I love that, that meme. I was, bo- I was born like this, son. How about this one? When the TV went to a commercial and they would say, don't go anywhere, we'll be right back, I would sit still until the show came back because I thought they could see me and I didn't want them to get mad if I left. (laughs) When I was a little kid, I thought people who died in movies really died in real life. I thought the makers of the movie just found a bunch of people who were ready to end it all and willing to be killed on film. When I was in second grade, a nutritionist came to talk about healthy eating. She told us hummus was a great snack and that it was made of chickpea. I thought she meant chickpea and refused to eat hummus until I was 15 and learned that chickpea was a type of bean. (laughs) That makes sense to me. I'm I'm with that girl. My parents owned a business and I overheard them discussing firing one of their employees. I was mortified that my parents would set someone on fire just because they weren't the best worker. Terrible parents. This is my favorite right here. When I was in the first grade, a lot of my school's teachers were pregnant. One day, I ran home to tell my mom that my teacher announced that she was expecting a baby too, and my mom said, I guess she drank the Kool-Aid. The next day, we were served Kool-Aid for a kid's birthday, and I freaked out screaming, I'm too young! I'm too young! (laughs) Oh, so good. Have you ever misunderstood what someone was saying? Have you ever done this with God? I know I have. Times that I thought God was saying something, or I read a particular verse in Scripture, and I thought I kind of understood what it meant. Uh, Sometimes people do it on purpose, uh, but I think most of the time, it's uh, purely an accident. When we come to engage with God's Word and what God Himself, through His Spirit, like Check it. We here at TLC believe that God is literally, not just like figuratively, but literally present among us right now. Okay, we believe that when the body of Christ gathers together, that Jesus as the head of the body is, is uniquely present with us. And so our, our expectation, like we tell people, like if you come to TLC, don't come expecting like good teaching or good worship or good coffee or... We've got at least two other three. <laughs> and when you come, we, want, we hope that like all that's there, okay? But we want people to come with an expectation that they're about to meet God, that, that like literally the living God is here and wants to speak. 
wants to engage with you. Again, doesn't mean that if you're a Christian that you don't have this Holy Spirit with you wherever you go, you do, all right? So you can encounter God and interact with God uh, on the golf course or in a coffee shop or in a cave or at your house or wherever, but there's something unique that happens when the body of Christ gathers together. And so we want people to come expecting that they're going to interact with God, hear from God, uh, that God's Spirit's going to do something uh, within you. But I'll admit there's been times when I thought I've heard God say something and that maybe I just misunderstood him. Or uh, I'll read something and, and, and I kind of like go with the tradition that I was raised in and so I assume that it means this or it means that when God actually wants to say something else. All right? So sometimes I think that God has to act, right? Or think in the way that makes the most sense to me. <laughs> but that's just not how it is all the time. So this morning, we're going to see how Jesus actually began to help people understand what it truly meant to be a disciple, all right, to live in his kingdom. And it was harder than they thought, and it was easier than they thought. So two weeks ago, we learned from the Beatitudes how somebody enters or gets into, uh, uh, who gets into, I should say, the kingdom of God, all right? And we uh, remember that it was anybody who asked, anybody who sought. Okay, so that's what the Beatitudes were uh, helping us understand, who gets in, and the answer is anybody who asks, anybody who seeks. And then last week, we learned that everybody who's blessed, who's actually uh, uh, received Christ into their life, that's entered into the kingdom, that they actually have the privilege of literally dispelling darkness while simultaneously uh, preserving and prospering our communities. All right, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We're supposed to be light. And we're supposed to be salt. And that, that's the kind of effect that salt and light have on a community. And that's something that we as a church want to be about. Today, we actually get to learn how this all happens. Now, last week, we talked about four verses. This week, we're going to be looking at 30. So here's what I want, all right? Um, I get it because I'm like this. Maybe you're, hopefully you're better than me. But when I, when I show up and I'm listening to somebody at church, like, I like stories. Okay, I just do. Uh, and I think stories are really valuable, and I hope to share a little bit with you a little bit later. Um, but this morning, I, I'm actually going to need you to engage with your thinking caps a little bit, all right? Sometimes, like, we show up and we're just kind of like, look, man, I need somebody to, like, keep me on my toes and, like, make me want to listen. And I get that, and I, I do want to try to help make you want to listen. But Today, also, I'm just going to need you to pull out your thinking cap a little bit and stick that bad boy on and engage, okay? One of the best ways to do that is to take notes. So if you see your, uh, uh, your program, your bulletin on the back side, there's a space for notes, you can jot some of this down. Some of this is going to be a little bit deep, but I think that it's important that as a church, sometimes we go deep, that we engage with some stuff that's kind of difficult. So if you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 17, and we're going to finish out this chapter today. Literally, there are, if you need a Bible, you can just raise your hands, and somebody will make sure that you grab one. There's a table of contents in the front, and they can, you can figure out where Matthew chapter 5 is. Matthew chapter 5, we're starting in verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Obviously, some folks were thinking this. They were assuming, well, Jesus is going around. He's healing people. He's teaching authoritatively. 
um, he, he seems to be saying things that are at odds with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so he must not actually like the Old Testament, which is the only scripture that they knew, okay? He must not like it. He must be against it. And Jesus wants to set the record straight right off the bat. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them or complete them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's really key, that phrase, until everything is accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is tricky right here. Because if you just read this, it would be very easy to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus saying that the entire Old Testament law is something that we're still supposed to follow today? I mean, that's what it looks like, right? He's like, hey, if you don't teach every single one of the commands, you're the least in the kingdom. He's like, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it or complete it. And it's not going anywhere until it is fulfilled or completed, until everything is accomplished. So does Jesus mean that we're supposed to, there was uh, about 613, I just said about, but it's actually 613 laws in the Old Testament. Okay, uh, um, most of you probably would have broken many of them already this morning, okay? <laughs> if you ate bacon, you broke it. <laughs> if, uh, um, if you have uh, any piece of clothing that has more than one type of fiber, so you got a 50-50 T on, like you broke a command already, okay? So the question is, is this what Jesus is saying? Because it seems to be what Jesus is saying. You, you, you got you to obey these things. You got to teach these things. But is it what Jesus is saying? He goes on to say, and this was probably the biggest shocker, verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a couple things that I want to say about this chunk before we move on to some of the others. Well, the first thing is that Jesus actually holds a very high view of Scripture, Okay? A lot of people thought he had a low view, but what Jesus was doing is he was explaining what the intent of the Old Testament was from the beginning, and Jesus isn't just talking about the law, what we often call the Mosaic law. That's the law that God gave to Moses. It included the Ten Commandments, okay? He's not just talking about that. That's all the laws about like uh, how you worship, how you make sacrifices, how much you're supposed to give, whether you can wear a shirt that's got two different kinds of fibers, what kind of animals you can't eat and can eat, and all that kind of stuff, all right? He says not just the law, but he also says the prophets. So the prophets is going to be all, all, he's basically saying the entire Old Testament is what he's referring to. And that's not just the laws, but it's also all of the things that were spoken or prophesied about the Messiah, who he was what he was going to do, where he would come from, ultimately how he would fulfill the law. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Jesus says, look, I'm coming to complete it, to fulfill it. I, I know, like, I love babies. That does not bother me one bit. I think that's so, if you have a baby, let him cry. It's okay. Um, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, though, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a shocking statement. 
Jesus has a very high view of Scripture. But I don't believe that Jesus is actually teaching that we're supposed to still obey the Old Testament law. I want us, this is the area, I'm going to actually give you a pretty long quote because it actually, I think, helps us understand it. But this is where I need you to engage now, okay? This is where I need you to not, like, turn off your brain. I need you to really focus in here, okay? Uh, um, I think this is a quote from Dr. Ron Hutchinson. I'm not 100% sure, so I'm not going to attribute it for sure, but I'm pretty sure this comes from him. Um, Listen to what it says. So Jesus did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He did come to complete them, to fulfill them, to bring them to their long-anticipated conclusion. We've already seen that the law was not given to make Jews righteous. That was what a lot of folks thought. Well, if you just obey it, that's how you become righteous, because nobody could, okay? He says it was given for several other important reasons, among which were setting apart the Jews as a special people, the revelation of God's holy character, and the proof that no one can actually live up to God's standards. But there was another purpose in the Old Testament scriptures, and that was to foreshadow, typify, and predict the arrival, the deeds, and the atoning death of the Messiah. That is what Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill those predictions, those shadows, those types that are scattered all throughout the entire law and the rest of the Old Testament. What does he mean when he says they're scattered all throughout the law and the rest of the Old Testament? In in the law, to atone for your sin, because nobody could actually do what the law said, not a single person, you had to bring a spotless lamb as a sacrifice. That spotless lamb was actually showing who Messiah was going to be. It had to be someone like Jesus who could actually live their life perfectly without sinning even once, perfect obedience to the law that Jesus did He's sprinkled in there. We also see him all throughout the prophets where they actually begin to talk about the fact that a virgin's going to give birth, that uh, um, they're going to come from Bethlehem, um, that uh, uh, they're going to come from the line of David as well as the line of Melchizedek. All these prophecies about the Messiah, Jesus fulfills them. And so we see this stuff that's sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. Continue with me now, okay? And when he finally fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had predicted concerning him, he nailed that old law to the cross. It is finished, Jesus said, and he abolished it. He did not destroy it, okay? It's interesting to check those two words. He did not destroy it. He fulfilled it, completed it, and then he abolished it. In other words, it was no longer necessary. Why did he abolish it? Because its purpose was now completed. It never was meant to produce righteousness anyway because nobody could actually do it. It was meant to reveal unrighteousness and drive us to the Savior. And when we have come to faith in the Savior, we have passed from under the jurisdiction of that law, the Old Testament law, forever. Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle. In other words, he crossed every T, dotted every single I, all right? He, uh, every jot and tittle of the law that referred to him by way of anticipation, and by doing so, he brought it to its logical and predetermined end. Now hang with me for this last one. Last sentence, here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus declares that he had come to fulfill the entire Old Testament. That's what he's doing. That's what he's saying when he says this. Look, I've come to do everything that that was pointing towards. Not only that, but I want to actually explain to you the heart behind it. What God was always doing. You see, the reason Jesus has such a high view of Scripture is because he wrote it. Like, this isn't just like other people's words. 
Like there is something called inspiration, okay? That's how we believe we actually have our Bible. This is kind of one of the things we talked about at our Bible series uh, a few months ago. Remember we had Dr. Burge was in and we talked about this idea of inspiration that God actually inspires his mind, his ideas into human authors who then write out the words. Jesus actually believed this himself. Why? Well, because he's the one who was doing the inspiring. So he holds it really high. He says it's something that's really important. Something we've got to pay attention to. Every word. It's not just like you can find God in Scripture, like a lot of it's human, but there's some God stuff in there. You've got to just mine the God stuff out of it. No, we believe that all of it is God's. That's why when Scripture comes in conflict with our worldviews, with maybe the culture we live in, as difficult as it is, as much as we don't like it, we say, you know what? We trust the Scripture. It's an authority outside of ourselves. Now, it does require, of course that we are not misunderstanding it or misapplying it, okay? But we believe that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can understand what God's Word is, and that God's Word, uh, quite honestly, if, if it lines up with everything you believe, you might not be understanding it correctly, <laughs> all right? If it lines up with everything that you like, you, you might be misinterpreting it or misapplying it. God's word is always something that begins to transform us and it holds up a standard of truth that no culture has ever been perfect at. No worldview has ever nailed perfectly. That's why we seek to be filled with the Spirit so that we can understand what God's worldview is, what the culture of the kingdom actually is, and begin to live that out. All right, so guys, that was a lot. I get it. And we're just getting started, okay? So don't take the thinking caps off quite yet. What Jesus is about to do now is uh, uh, he kind of lays out, hey, I, I believe in this Old Testament. In fact, not only that, but I'm coming to fulfill it. Now he's saying, I'm going to give you, though, a, a more authoritative, a better way to understand it. I'm going to explain it to you uh, uh, for what the heart of it is. Now, um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, everybody thought like, man, how can you get better than them? Okay, they, they were the Mother Teresas of the day. Uh, um, the, 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 the pastors, the theologians, like they, they felt like they had like the Bible on lockdown, like they knew exactly, and they even gave interpretations of what it meant to follow it. And so if they couldn't do it, who else can? I mean, that, that's the shocking thing in verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right? Uh, listen to this quote. He wants everybody to know that no one can be good enough. So he says this, the shock of that declaration, okay, that, that you have to be better than the Pharisees and teachers of the law, strips away current understanding for how we gain favor with God and serves both as an introduction to what's about to follow and as an implied disclosure of the central principle of the life in the kingdom of heaven. The central principle, okay, that might be important, namely that kingdom righteousness operates from the inside out, not the outside in. We're going to say that out loud together, okay? We're going to start with kingdom righteousness. You guys ready? We're going to say it all together out loud. Kingdom righteousness operates, is it not up there? Can we please put that back up there? Then we're going to do it all together. There we go. Very... Next one. There we go. No. All right. I lied. Here's what you're going to do. I'm going to say it. You're going to repeat after me. You ready? Kingdom righteousness, Kingdom righteousness 
operates from the inside out, not the outside in. Boom, nailed it. Hashtag nailed it. <laughs> I want to come back to this concept uh, of inside out in a little bit. That's how we're going to close our time together. Now, what Jesus does is he actually shares this chunk as kind of the beginning or the introduction into what the rest of chapter 6 is about. We're going to get six different times where Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I tell you. Now, it used to be before that people would look at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they say, like, man, they are the best, and yet they couldn't even do it. They couldn't be perfect with the law. Even, even the Pharisees and teachers of the law actually had to go and, and do sacrifices so they could be forgiven of their sins, okay? And now, uh, Jesus says, they often viewed it as an outside in. If I do the right things, I'm cool. Problem was, they couldn't even do it. Now, Jesus is about to say, not only is that not enough, there's got to be more. This is why I say that what Jesus tells us is actually, it's super hard, but it's also really easy. And, and, and I'll hopefully make sense of that when we get to the end of this chunk. Chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says this, talking about murder. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which just means like empty head, okay, you're a blockhead, Charlie Brown, all right, that's basically what it means, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's pretty intense for calling somebody a fool, right? You ever said that? Well, then you're in danger of the fires of hell. <laughs> Okay, that, that should freak us out a little bit because we've all been there, right? Jesus says it's not just good enough to not murder somebody. It's actually also the motive behind it of why you're even angry with them in the first place. Therefore, if you are offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid every last penny, he says. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus takes what we thought was something we were supposed to do, and he actually elevates it. He makes it tougher, because now it's not just whether I do this thing, like, thankfully, I've never murdered anyone, okay? But Jesus says, that's not enough. Like, it's, have you ever gotten angry with somebody to the point that you struck at their identity? Look at this quote from uh, Dr. Wilkins. He says this, true disciples not only avoid murder, but are transformed so that they recognize the image of God in every person. This causes them to continually desire reconciliation. It's like if this was hard before, Jesus just bumps it up to a whole nother level. And he's about to do that six times in a row. You see, the reason that murder is wrong is because it destroys the dignity and worth that God has placed into every single human being because we are made in his image. And when we get angry with somebody and we call them names, which in our unfortunately political climate today is all too familiar, and we kind of, I think, get dragged down into that thinking that it's okay because, well, look what all these other people are doing. Jesus has a higher standard. He says, man, when, when, you, when you assault someone's identity... 
They're made in my image. That's why they have value. And Jesus says it's not just about murder. It's also about how we're viewing the person. That's why we have to pursue reconciliation. Man, that's hard. Like if somebody's been really, really brutally awful to you, that's hard. Continue on. Adultery. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, let's just be real here. Don't misunderstand Jesus on this one, okay? He, he's using a, a, a way of, of kind of overspeak here, all right? He doesn't literally want you to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, okay? Um, but what Jesus says is it's not just good enough to, to not do the physical act, we have to love our spouses, love what marriage is and the beautiful thing that God has given us that we actually take it to a whole nother level. Anybody in here perfect? I hate this one. Truth be told, I mean, if there's one of these that, uh, that I'm going to be honest that I'm probably struggling, I don't know, I struggle with a lot of these to be honest, but I wish, I wish the standard was lower in some ways because I, I just realize how awful I personally am of meeting up to it. Dr. Wilkins says, True disciples not only shun physical acts of adultery but are so completely committed to God's purpose for marriage that they have eyes and hands only for their spouse. Verse 31 32, divorce. It's been said, anybody who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Dr. Wilkins says this, true disciples not only respect God's design for marriage, but are unreservedly committed to its permanence and sanctity. Marriage is sacred. It's not just a man-made thing. Marriage is something that God designed, and we need to actually hold it up, not just simply going through the motions, but actually the heart behind why God designed it. It's actually supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. There's a reason that it matters, because it shows us something. It teaches us something. Oaths. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. And then he goes on to share some more, and I don't have time, so I'm going to skip through a couple of these a little bit quicker. True disciples, Dr. Wilkins says, do not need to give oaths in order to confirm their trustworthiness because their faithful lives repeatedly confirm the reliability of their words. We don't need to make an oath. We don't need to swear anything because we should already show by the way that we act that we are true, and what we say we will do. Eye for an eye, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, this was like a soldier for the Roman army could literally stop you, whatever you were doing, didn't matter what you were doing. Working, in the middle of something, uh, and they could say to you, carry all my armor, my bag, whatever, for the next mile. And they were allowed to do that, and you couldn't say anything. You just had to stop whatever you were doing and go carry their stuff for a mile. And Jesus says, if anybody asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Dr. Wilkins says this, true disciples are so secure in their identity as God's children that when they are wrong, they do not merely adhere to legal retribution, but use every opportunity to serve both good and evil people so that the reality of God's grace in their lives woos others towards God. Um, it, unless you've like literally completely shut off from all media, been living in a village without electricity, uh, you've been hearing a lot about the um, Larry Nasser, Dr. Nasser case. He's the, the doctor that abused a, a number, uh, over about 150 at least, um, young female gymnasts. And I was reading, uh, I think it was the gal, um, she's in her 30s now, she's a lawyer, and I think she was the one who actually brought the, uh, the first charges uh, her name is Rachel Den Hollander, and uh, Rachel is a solid believer. Um, I read her impact statement that she was able to read before Mr. Nasser and the judge. And uh, she doesn't shy away from saying that the judge should throw the book at him. She says the judge ought to do everything that she should do go hard on him, but she gets about two-thirds of the way through, and she begins to talk about what Jesus has done in her own life and why she prays for Mr. Nasser, because she wants him to understand what he's done in its fullness so that he will realize how far he has fallen so that he will turn his eyes towards Christ and experience the salvation that Christ offers. That's shocking for somebody to be able to say. Friends, that's, that's the law that Jesus is now placing. It's not just good enough to do certain things. There is a heart motivation behind it. And Rachel Den Hollander understood that. Doesn't mean that she's easy on Dr. Nasser for what he did, but it does mean that she can also, in the midst of that, walk the extra mile. goes on, it says, love for your enemies. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, this is what the scribes and the Pharisees were talking about, or this is what they taught, okay? He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then verse 48, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. True disciples not only love what God loves and hate what God hates, but they have the renewed heart of God that enables them to love the world of sinners for whom Jesus died. Guys, can I just tell you, this is tough stuff. Like, flat out. Jesus gives these six things, and he takes what used to be an impossible bar, and then he raises it. This is what I said. Like, this is hard. It's not easy. You say you want to follow Jesus? Well... This was the bar. Jesus just made this the bar. You couldn't even get this one. And what does he say at the very end? Be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so what am I supposed to do? I'm not. I know me. Like, you guys get to see, like, Facebook me on Facebook, right? Which is everybody's, like, best side. Half fake. Some nice filters, right? 
You get to see me up on stage, and I let you in on some stuff, but man, there's stuff I wouldn't want you to know. What am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Like, this is hard. This is really, really hard. Do you feel overwhelmed? <laughs> Maybe a little bit defeated. It's all right. I think God wants us. Because I think there's two things that are actually happening here. I want to close with these two thoughts. Number one, you cannot and never could match up to God's perfect standard. Just flat out impossible. Nobody can. This is why we need Jesus. All right, you can't practice Christianity without Jesus starting something new in your heart first. There are, there are folks, and I, and I know them, they're like, man, I'm just not, like, I've got some work to do, then I'll be ready to come to Jesus. Like, Jesus wouldn't take me where I'm at right now because, like, I know that I'm doing stuff that Jesus wouldn't want me to do. I know I don't match up, so I got to get a few things right first. And if I get a few things right first, then, like, I'll be good enough. Like, if we can just, like, build some momentum, right? Some good momentum. I'm going to go a whole week without getting wasted and sleeping with some random girl or random dude. Like, if I can go a whole week, like, I build up some momentum, like, maybe then I'll be good enough Go a whole week without, you fill in your blank, whatever that blank is, right? But that's not how it works. Righteousness never works from the outside in. Righteousness only works from the inside out. When we say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm screwed up. I need you to come in to do something in my life. I need you to come in and like take over, take the inside of me, renew me. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus wants to do. And then, from the inside out, stuff begins to happen. You see, Jesus starts to transform our heart, our soul. And then when that happens, it begins to renew our mind, which then affects how we think, how we talk, which then affects how we act. And then it, how we act affects how we interact with the world around us, the people around us, even the people that dislike us or our quote-unquote enemies, even people who are the other, people from other countries that completely disagree with us, or maybe just my frenemy. You see, that's how it works. Jesus has to start in here, and you've got to allow him to do that. That's thought number one. And I so, man, I just, I've been praying this morning. I've been praying all week. I think there's honestly some folks that are sitting in here right now that God has you here, and it's not an accident. It was very purposeful that God brought you here this morning because he wanted you to hear that. I told you, God's here. I think God wanted you to hear that because God wants to actually do something today. But you've got to let him. You've got to offer yourself to him. You've got to say, God, you can have my heart. And so in, a, in, in just a minute, I'm going to give, if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to engage with God. Uh, secondly, though, um, is this. Uh, this happened in the 1976 Olympics. There was a little 14-year-old girl. Her name was Nadia Komenich. You can see, I think, a picture of her up on the screen. In gymnastics, there had literally never been, in fact, they thought it was impossible to get a perfect 10. 
until the 1976 Montreal Olympics when Nadia Comaneci was the first one. In fact, this is what's so awesome. Uh, you see what her number is? What is her number? One. Okay, you want to know why? Because uh, they asked the people who made the Swiss timing board, um, the, the people who made the board came to the uh, Olympic Committee and they said, um, you know, what do we need? And they said, well, we need three spaces. Because usually scores are like 885, 925, 975. If you were awesome, you might get a 995. No one had ever gotten a 10. And so when Nadia Komenich actually delivered what was considered the very first perfect gymnastics score, gymnastics routine, they had no way to give her a 10. So the first thing that came up was this. And the very first picture that you see with Nadia Komenich is her looking like this. She's like, I thought I just crushed it, and they gave me a one. Like, that's like an impossibly no low number. And they actually had to explain, uh, she got the very first 10, and then everybody's like, ah, like the place erupted, okay? Nadia Komenich went on to get seven, excuse me, six more perfect 10s in that Olympics, went on to get two more perfect 10s over the course of her Olympic career for a total of nine perfect 10s. Be perfect as you're... Father in heaven is perfect. What everybody thought was impossible was... Here's the question, though. How many times do you think Nadia Komenich did that routine? <laughs> nine times? Nine perfect times? No. Hundreds, thousands of times. I know, my daughter is a gymnast. Is it possible... Yeah, with, with Jesus' help, that's our goal. Our goal is the perfect 10. Are you there? Probably not. It's quite rare. It's like kind of the peak of your game, which for a Christian would probably be like just before you die. Okay? <laughs> uh, one of the greatest gymnasts of our era Possibly, you could put her up as one of the greatest gymnasts of all time, Simone Biles. This was her at the Olympics uh, 2016. Whoops. One of the greatest gymnasts ever. Made a mistake. You know what she did afterwards? She smiled. Why? Because she wasn't afraid that she was going to get beaten by the judges for making a mistake. Was she giving her best? Yeah. Was she able to do it perfectly? Nope. But see, that's the difference, I think, is how we approach or view what God is, who God is, and what he's trying to do. You see, if we think that God is on our team, if he is our coach, our father, who's actually supernaturally working inside of us to help us grow more and more and more towards perfection, rather than God being simply the judge who's always looking to see, oh, you got that wrong, oh, you got that, I'm going to nail you for doing that. It begins to change our entire perspective. You see, no longer are we afraid of pursuing the perfect 10 because we're not afraid of the failure. We're excited about the journey of what God wants to do in our lives, how he wants to change things. My daughter, I told you, does gymnastics, and there's a picture of her up there. Uh-huh. See that top one? Gold, first place. But you see the one underneath that? Silver, some bronzes. It's still awesome. When I watch my daughter do gymnastics, I am out of my head, excited, happy. She was good in level three, but she's way better now in level five. 
And as her dad, you know how excited and happy I am to see her growth? Am I just mad at her when she was level three thinking, well, you're not in level 10 yet. How dare you? I can't even, I can't even look at you right now. And yet so often we think God's like that. We think God's just like, well, you're not perfect, like I said. And God's like, no, you're my kid. I love you right where you're at. Level three, level five, level seven, whatever, level negative three. <laughs> I love you, and I'm going to do something. If you'll let me, I'm going to do something to help you grow and mature. He's like, let's do this together. That's why we don't have to be afraid when Jesus says be perfect, when Jesus raises the bar, because Jesus says, I'll help you. We'll do it together. That's what God wants for us. The band's going to come right now. We're going to move into a time of worship and a time of communion. And I love communion because communion is the symbolic act of being united with Christ, remembering what his death and resurrection did, that he was willing to pay the price so that we don't have to. And so when we take the body and the blood, remembering his sacrifice, we also take him in, reminding ourselves that Jesus wants to transform us from the inside out. I want you to go ahead and bow your eyes. Bow your eyes? That's awesome. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Look, I think that there's some folks here this morning that God's speaking to. God wants you to give yourself fully to him so that he can begin to do a work on the inside out. You can't do it on your own. Nobody can. And if that's you this morning... I just want you to raise your hand so we can pray together. If you're like, hey, that's me, man. I, I want that. I want, I want to receive Christ today. I want Jesus to come in and begin to do something in my heart inside. Yep. You don't have to be afraid. Yeah. If that's you, just, yes. I want you to pray. Pray this prayer. You can just kind of pray it along with me in your head to God. God is right here with you, listening. Dear God, come into my life. Take me where I'm at. Transform my heart. I believe today, Jesus. And I want your help to transform my life. Jesus, I believe that you are God's son, that you died and you rose again. Make me new. Begin today. Today I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, if you're here this morning and you just need an infilling of, of God's grace, of his spirit, we're going to take communion in just a minute, and here's how it's going to go. Um, we're going to have some folks at each table, and uh, you can walk forward when you're ready, and you can take the body and the blood. We simply ask this, that um, you know that you're a follower of Jesus, okay? Um, the scripture seems pretty clear that uh, this is intended for folks who follow Jesus. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church. In fact, Nobody's a member of this church right now. We don't have membership, so it's all good. Uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian, we want you to come and partake. 
And uh, once you've partaken, or maybe before you partake, okay, this would be one of those times where before you uh, um, do the uh, sacrifice, uh, you maybe need to do something. Maybe you need to go shoot somebody a text and apologize, pursue something again. If you need an infilling of God's grace, of his spirit, maybe there's just some stuff that's going on. I want you to know that all up front here, this is a place to come and to kneel and pray. And we've got folks that want to pray with you. You might even have some folks that are going to be down here just praying. And if you come down, they'll, they'll gather around you. We want you to know that this place is open. We're not a church that's afraid to like show people stuff, okay? Um, that's just not who we are. It's not what we're going to be about. We're going to be a church that actually says, you know what, God, we, we don't care what people see or what people think. Uh, we care about what you're doing. And so if, if you need to, the altar's open this morning. Come and cry out. Cry out and be reminded that you have a Father who loves you who is on your team, who wants to see you grow more and more and more. When you're ready, oh, I'm sorry. Let me read the words of institution. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Apostle Paul says this, For I received this from the Lord. What I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this, is, uh, this cup excuse me, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body of and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. God, thank you that you love us and that even though your standard is impossibly high for us to do on our own, Jesus, you died and rose again so that you could enter our lives and change us from the inside out. You made that which was impossible, possible. Would you continue to transform us? Thank you for your death. We take your body and your blood this morning as a reminder, a symbol of what you've done and the truth that you are ever with us through your spirit. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.